This is Ari Koretsky and welcome to Jews You Should Know, introducing the broader community to interesting and inspiring Jewish men and women making a difference in our world. Some are already famous, some not yet so, but each is a Jew you should know. We are back with another wonderful episode of Jews You Should Know. Lately, my wife and I have been doing a lot of budgeting and talking a lot about different financial issues. My wife has gotten very into Rabbi Dave Ramsey. <laughs> I don't think he's a rabbi, but he's definitely a, a very uh, religious and, and pro-religion person. But he's also very fiscally conservative and uh, very into budgeting and saving and so forth for those who are familiar. Well, we have on today, perhaps we can call him the Jewish Dave Ramsey. He doesn't have his own radio show, but he is definitely a major advocate for responsible financial living. Shmuley Margolis founded Masila a number of years ago, and he provides financial education to children and adults, families all over the world through a wide variety of services and programs comes from a very, very interesting family. His father was a survivor and of Hasidic origin who made a great deal of money running a public company and was a phenomenal philanthropist, incredibly generous person known throughout the Jewish world. And Shmuley grew up with many siblings, one of 11, all of whom are engaged in various pursuits around the world. And he himself felt a tremendous responsibility to help people understand how to manage their money so that their money is not managing them, how to live with peace of mind, with serenity, and not to be burdened constantly by the possible debilitating stresses of financial difficulty. Once again, a reminder to subscribe, either at Apple Podcasts or wherever else you are listening to this episode. And to please spread the word, follow us on Instagram at Jews You Should Know, spelled out fully. Facebook is the same. And on Twitter, Jews You Should Know with the letter U. And now to my conversation with Masila founder Shmuley Margolis. And we are here with Shmuley Margolis the founder and director of Masila, an organization helping families navigate personal and business finance and a really remarkable organization that is spread all over the world. How are you, Shmuley? Thank you, uh, Rabbi. Wonderful. I'm here actually in England right now for a family uh, wedding and in touch with Masila UK, of course. And uh, just because I can't get away from all that, but uh, uh, enjoying and happy to be with you here today. Wonderful. So that means uh, you're not actually living in England, it sounds like, although your accent does sound British. So where do you actually live? I grew up in London, England. And then I, before I married, I went to study in Yeshiva in Jerusalem. And I've been there since. I had no intention of staying there. But Or Hashem, with the development of the years, I think the sign of the mission that I felt, and Or Hashem, we're, we're still there, still working hard, and uh, feel privileged and happy to be there. Jerusalem has a way of uh, really drawing you in and, and keeping you in. Once you're there. Mm-hmm. Correct. Yeah. So I, I'm, one of, I'm one of 11 children, 11 siblings, and my wife is one of seven, and we're the only ones there. You're the only ones there. So and now was, is everyone else in, in London? Was, where, where is everyone from? My siblings are in London, in, in New York, and my wife's siblings are all, all in New York. And we, we view ourselves to an extent as survivors because we also plan to come just for a year or two and go back. But there was some kind of mission which kept us there and uh, we're happy and delighted to have family and 
married children all living in Israel, very privileged and uh, delighted to be there. Beautiful. So now tell me a little bit about your upbringing. You, as you said, you grew up in London. What was that childhood like before you got yeah. to Israel? Sure. My late father was a very well-known entrepreneur and philanthropist. He was chief executive of a very large public company in the UK. I was the, I am the 10th of the 11 children. So when uh, growing up, I was born into my father's prime years. He was leading a very large public company and uh, charitable uh, activities. There were uh, rabbis uh, from around the world, regular visitors in the home. That's the home that I was born into. Um, really legendary. My father was a very, very well known. He was known by rabbis from US, Israel, UK, of course, and there was a bustling home. Was he himself um, British I, in origin or was he a survivor? What was his background? He, he was born in Poland, but he came as three years old and he served in the Royal Navy during the war. And he, he went straight into the world of commerce and he was very well known in, in the UK, but not just in the UK. Uh, I know that when he, he was a very well-known commodity uh, dealer and he did a lot in coffee and in cocoa and uh, he was known in the world, in the world of commerce as Marg, M-A-R-G, as the first four letters of his family name. And so they called this Marg there. Anyway, he once came to the U.S., and the heads of Mars came to <laughs> re receive him and they created for him a uh, uh, full size, uh, size of a human, a Marg bar. <laughs> so the mother. So that there was, and he was, he was very, very well known. Cadbury and Mars, uh, all, all the, the big uh, commodity companies knew him. And the, there's an interesting, very interesting thing. There was a cocoa dinner, an annual cocoa dinner in London. Sounds delicious. <laughs> and the, I don't know if they gave cocoa, but it was an annual cocoa dinner where all the traders from around the world came. And it was every year on Friday night. That's when the dinner was. Now, my late father was religious Jew. His father was actually a Hasidic rabbi. Came, came from Poland, had a shul, did wonderful things in London. But he never had that upbringing. He didn't look like a rabbi at all. He didn't have a beard. He was uh, uh, very well known in the world of commerce. But obviously, a dinner on Friday night wasn't something that he could attend. So what did he do? Everybody was coming to London anyway. So he made every year dinner on Thursday night the night before the cocoa dinner was called Marg's dinner. <laughs> and, and everybody said that Marg's dinner was always better than the cocoa dinner. <laughs> so they all came and he took a, a hall, exactly the same. You know, it was like people came for both events. And my father obviously never, never attended the Friday night dinner. And, and, you know, so he proclaimed the whole world knew that my father's a religious Jew keeping the Sabbath and uh, a tremendous Kiddush Hashem, you know, tremendous, uh, everybody, did. all the non-Jews knew that this is a special uh, night, Friday night he can't come, and therefore there's a dinner on Thursday night. The interesting thing is that one of my father's disciples, or whatever it is, after my father passed away, I think even still today, makes a dinner on Thursday night. He's a non-Jew. The Marg Memory I don't know if they, they still speak about him. I don't know if they even know where, where the origin is from. But still, many, many years later, there's still another dinner on Thursday night, the night before the Cocoa dinner. That's a, an interesting, interesting story about, about my father. Did your father the, want all of his children or some of his children to go into his business? And was that part of the upbringing? No, absolutely not. Not just that. When some of them thinking of 
cutting their beards or anything, he, he objected. In other words, he, had, he was brought up during the war where he, he lacked the, the proper uh, environment to go in his father's ways. So he, he didn't, but he wanted his, his children to be more similar to his father than to their father. Interesting. So although, although my siblings are, a number of them are in business, but they all have beards and all wear chassidic garb, unlike our father. So and, he, and, he was, and he was very proud of that. What was he, what, what, what about his childhood made him miss that education? Was it because it was during the war years or it was before then? Uh, it was before, but there was no infrastructure for religious uh, institutions. In London, it was a, it was a desert. He went to a non-Jewish school. And uh, although he had, his father was a Hasidic rabbi, his father was very soft. And, you know, in, in, in those days, it was a question of losing your children. So they, they went, uh, none of his children were looked the way he did. And it, it was just different times. And my father never went to yeshiva. So he went to non-Jewish school and then into the Navy. So it was a whole different upbringing. And, uh, you know, he went, to, he went in a different direction. When he was young, he was like dreaming to become the Lord Mayor of London. Those were his uh, aspirations. And he went, and even before he was married, he was a successful businessman. So what were some of the major causes that he was invested in? He said, he said he was a major philanthropist all over the world. What, what were some of the signature causes? It was, there was virtually nowhere that he didn't, he didn't invest in. I'm just what, what I remember was to do with America was that he once came for an MTJ dinner where they like declared uh, Ramosha Feinstein as the good Lador, as the giant of the, of the generation. They called my, my father came to, was honored or whatever it is at that dinner in, in America. So I'm saying wow. even causes in America. I remember Herb Schneer Kotler from Lakewood came to London um, I, remember, I still remember it clearly, but this I didn't, don't remember, I was too young, but they told me that my father asked them, how much are you expecting to raise here in London? So he told them an amount, and my father said, you can rest assured that you know, we'll, he, he guaranteed him the amount, and that, that already took a tremendous um, burden off him. But he went and collected, and I think my father didn't have to give that much, but it was, they, they his children know that they, my father did unbelievable things, even for Rabbi Kotler. And then there was Rabbi Israel Tauber from Monsi Tauber. Sure, he passed away recently. Passed away recently. So my father at one point was a tremendous supporter of him in the, in the early days. Um, and then really everywhere. Uh, well, there wasn't any, anybody that he, he was close with many, um, one of the leading rabbis of the generation. They all knew him. Even the, uh, I, I remember going with him to the Lubavitcher Rebbe and, and many others. Today is the youth out of the Klosenberger Rebbe, and he was very close with him. Uh, very special relationship. Incredible. Have any of your siblings followed suit in, in terms of a philanthropic uh, career, so to speak? Uh, not really. We're, we're um, 11 of us. Right. So, he, he was very special, very unique, but each one took just an 11th of, of his characteristics. So I can't say on anybody. Although all his children are involved in chesed in a big way, almost all, and uh, some of them are very, even uh, well-known and unique in what they do. But nobody can we say that is uh, exactly like he was. Incredible. In other words, uh, I have a brother in London who helps people raise money in an incredible way. That wasn't my father. He, he didn't do that. He gave of his own. Um, but not, none of them really have the, the ability to, to. You can have the desire, but you also need the capacity. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. Wonderful. So Although, he, yeah. he, did, he, did be, he did beyond his capacity. So he had the desire and it consumed him. And he, he didn't think about the capacity. He said, we'll, see, we'll, we'll look at that later. It's a, a little bit not, a little bit not Masila-like. Right, right, exactly. So, 
you ended up going to Israel and, and studying, I guess, in, in yeshivas there and you know, religious yeah. schools and staying. It sounds like, I guess, at some point you met your wife uh, there and she was American. I didn't meet my wife in uh, Israel. I met my wife in New York and we married in New York. And both of us planned to come for a short period, a temporary period of a year, two, three, and that's it. And uh, here you are. <laughs> there was, there was, that's right. Here we are. There was something else in plan for us. And uh, we're delighted that it turned out this way. Well, what brought you to New York to, to meet your wife? Is that why you went to New York? Correct. Yeah. Actually, one of my brothers was friendly with my wife's brother. And that's how it, we, we got to meet. Beautiful. Beautiful. So now uh, take me to the story of, uh, of Masila, of how you, how this all came about. I guess you were just a regular student in a yeshiva in Israel, married, studying, you know, doing the, the regular studying thing. What, what ended up developing for you? Actually, not quite. Okay. Um, <laughs> at, a, at a pretty young age, um, I said my father was an entrepreneur and I was born uh, into, as a young child, they heard ideas of, public company and stocks and takeovers and uh, mergers and acquisitions. All these things were things that I was brought up with. And at some point, a few years after I married, I started investing a little bit here and there part-time. And uh, I was doing quite well. And I was young. I was like 29. Not like that. I was 29 when my father passed away. And... Uh, it was in the year of my father's passing that an uh, old friend of mine, who I knew from, back from England, came to me actually to invest in something that he had started. And I trusted him a lot and I was happy to invest. And at that time, I had no intention of being involved. I was busy with my business and my learning. And... Over time, I invested a substantial amount of money. There's one episode which I, which I want to tell you about that I was at home. I don't remember if I was learning, but somebody came into me and said that he, he was collecting. I said, tell me a little bit, what do you do? He said, he's a cipher, he's a scribe. And he had some, some, something which took him into debt and he has $20,000 of debt, and he's so busy servicing the debt that he doesn't have the peace of mind to, to write, and he virtually doesn't earn anything, and he doesn't have money to put food on the table. So I said, if you found somebody to lend you $20,000 and let you pay over time, what would the result be? He said, not just would I be able to feed my family with dignity, I will be able to repay the debt over time as well. I said, so why don't you find that loan? He said, it just doesn't exist. And I said, this has to change. because, I, And I said to him at the time, I see that you're a Yerushimayim, I see that you're God-fearing, I see that you're, you could be a quality scribe, which would you'd be popular, there'd be demand, and you could really earn a living. So this was... Like to me, a no-brainer, healthy person, capable person, has earning potential, yet his circumstances have taken away that ability from him. And I think it's incumbent upon us to give that opportunity back to him. And when I heard his story and I put it together with this other guy who came and told me about his concept, I said, this is just too good to be true. And... And I said then, and I continue to say now, that we have to make this opportunity available to people everywhere. Where with a little push, with some guidance, whatever it is, we'll talk about how it evolved. Give people an opportunity to get back on their feet, to lead a healthy, productive life where they contribute to society rather than being a toll uh, from society. Incredible. So you had this encounter with this, this person and you had kind of this light bulb moment. Um, what, did you, what did you do with it? 
so I initially I still had no intention of being involved. I again, as I said, I was busy with my business and with my learning, and I just came back to this guy who approached me, who I trusted greatly, who I knew him from from back from England, and I said I gave him I gave him money. I was doing well in my business activities. I gave him money and he started telling me the story of which family he's investing in and what the circumstances are. And I said, he reminds me now that I said to him, don't tell me the details, give me the amount. Because I trust you, you're doing it, you're doing a thorough job and that's what, that's what he is. He's English, he does a real thorough job. And at that time, we, he was lending people money to cover all their debt going through their income and expenses to understand that they've got a surplus or they could potentially have a surplus. And over time, letting them repay us when they make a commitment not to take out any loans during this time, during this whole period. That was the concept initially. And then it evolved over the years. Um, slow, two things happened. Slowly, slowly, I got more and more involved. Because this person who did it in the beginning had it all in his little notebook. And I felt with my business background that there's a better way of doing this. In addition, he was busy earning a living and he couldn't apply himself totally to it. So slowly, slowly, I got more and more involved. He got less and less involved. And we started making it more and more business-like, recording things properly and doing it properly. And then over the years, we saw that um, people came for the money rather than for the education or the guidance. And they said, yeah, 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 we're listening to the guidance, but they weren't really listening to the guidance. They were just waiting for the check. Right. And, and ultimately, I'm saying it in a few minutes, but it was really years and new understanding, new insights. We felt, it was two things really, it was also the Gemach industry the free loan society industry developed and increased. Whereas uh, when it started, you couldn't get a loan for more than one or $2,000. It became five, then it became 10. So the availability of having that kind of loan was much more available. In addition, I felt that we were losing the opportunity to actually give the guidance. And we slowly moved out of giving loans altogether. And people said to us, stop giving loans. Who's going to come to you? Who, who needs your guidance? No one wants your guidance. If you don't have a, a, some bait to draw them in, no one's going to come. And it turned out completely different. And not just that, but somebody actually, one of our uh, activists stepped out and opened his own organization. Uh, that actually wasn't then. It was when, at the later stage, we said not just we're not giving loans and not just we're giving only guidance, we're actually going to charge for the guidance. And there was also a lot of reasoning behind that. Uh, and a good part was that we felt that people had to make a commitment to be actually buy into the, to the process. And at that point, there was one of our main activists who said, I don't believe in taking money from people. These are people who are having a hard time. Don't take more money from them. And he went and opened up his own activity and he's helping people. And uh, I, w I wish him a lot of hatzlocha. Uh, I think he, should, he does good work and he should continue to do good work. I still believe that the best way is to charge people. You can give them a scholarship here and there, but the, the, as soon as people pay for something, they suddenly are motivated and going to do what they can to make, make it work, to get them uh, a return on their investment. Oh. So you, as you said, you moved away from the loan industry, so to speak, and and into a uh, advisory kind of approach where you were basically helping people navigate finances, I guess, and, and learn how to live healthier yeah. financial lives. We give coaching and we give general principles. We teach people general principles, but we don't actually advise uh, just because we don't believe that uh, it's a good approach. Uh, it's, it's a lot of coaching, it's a lot of motivating and helping people find the way rather than actually advising them. And often the client says to us, yeah, but I came to you, so you tell me what to do. And we say, no, you came to us for us to ask you what you think you should do. Uh, so that's, that's a very important thing.
but yes, we did. We moved out of giving people loans. And then eventually we started charging people and we continue to charge people and we're charging more and more over time. It's, again, it's, it's, it's revolutionary, the whole, the whole process uh, of, you know, you're, you're a chesed organization, you're helping people and here you are charging them. Uh, but slowly, slowly, you know, we, the, the, I think the world changed as well, where uh, in, in our parents' time, somebody had money, they didn't need any help. Nowadays, there are people who have money, who are earning money, nevertheless, uh, can't make it and need help navigating their finances, regardless of how much they're earning. Therefore, again, there's much more justification to charge uh, people for the service, and we feel that uh, people get a great return. And uh, it, it works a lot better that way. So what exactly has the organization become and what have, what have been some of the services that you are offering? Right. First thing that I would say, and I, I always say this, that I view the SILA as a movement rather than an organization. And I say, what's the difference between a movement and an organization? A movement is a train of thought, is an idea that we, that we promote. That's, that's called a movement. So here's the same thing. The fact that we do something that's more like an organization, but a movement is because we believe in a way of life, in a train of thought, in certain principles that are basic principles. They're all Torah-based. But nevertheless, uh, they say that common sense is not so common nowadays. So we strongly and continuously promote the common sense. that People need to be on top of their finances, and manage their finances rather than be managed by their finances, which most people are. And um, we do it in many different ways. Um, but basically, we've got the Masila way where we encourage and we promote people to be aware of their finances, be on top of their finances, and manage them so that they serve their interests rather than draw them away from their interests. We empower people. And that's just a general overview. But uh, in actual practice, what we do is we have education and we have coaching. And the education is in schools, uh, teenagers, young couples, Khosna and Kala, before they get married, as soon as after they get married. And then there's adult education as well. Some people who are married already a long time mid-age, whatever, whatever age, and they still need education. So obviously, the older they are, it's more difficult to educate. But nevertheless, when we show people there's a benefit and we can improve your quality of life, people are thirsty and people do are looking for a better way because they know that uh, the way without Masila is, is unpleasant and causes stress and, and many other things that, that come along with that. What are some of the main principles you said that you try to impart? So I suppose it's different between children and adults. When we speak to children, uh, we don't want to burden them with, uh, you know, what does it mean to manage a home and uh, family finances? Because they're still young and probably won't appreciate uh, that, those concepts. And we also don't want to prematurely uh, have them worry about how they're going to marry off their children, whatever it is, <laughs> before it's necessary. So for children, we talk about understanding the value of money and to appreciate um, when their parents give them something to understand the value and to understand when their parents don't give them something, what does the parent mean? The parent has a budget, they have to make choices, and it's Whenever you say yes to one thing, you're really saying no to something else. And to understand peer pressure, we teach children not just not to be impressed by peer pressure, not to be negatively impacted, but to actually be a positive peer pressure on their friends and to show their friends and to be happy, although they're not getting everything, but to take pride in, in what they do have and to take care of, of things and to understand advertising, understand how to defend yourself from the world of advertising. Uh, and we give children different examples and we help them understand 
brand names and not brand names. All these are things that if uh, taught cleverly to children, uh, they can relate to it. I'll give you just one example where we show children they're going to an amusement park and they have three hours to be in the amusement park and there's a whole bunch of rides. It, it says in a table, what's the waiting time for the ride and what, how long the ride takes. And, and the children have to choose which ride they're going to go on because they can't go in three hours on all the rides. So some of the more popular rides have a long waiting time and a short ride time. So we tell the children, if you really want that, like everyone else, go for it. Wait, wait the time. But if you don't, just because everyone else is doing it is not a good idea because you're losing a lot of time on the waiting. It's only a short, short ride. So we teach a lot of concepts to the children by talking about the amusement park. The children wake up, the children hear them, you know, give them different examples. Suddenly they're all alive. We're teaching them concepts of thinking ahead, planning your time, where the time is the commodity rather than talking about money. Uh, and also to look at what you want rather than what your friends want so that it serves you best so that you can be most productive in how you're using your time. That's an example of, of, of messages that are taught to children so that they can learn to appreciate and be responsible and be smart about it rather than following the, the herd, following everybody else. And we spoke about advertising and a bit of peer pressure and appreciating their parents, not just not being pressure on their parents, but to tell the parents, no, it's okay, we can manage, we're happy with what we have, et cetera, et cetera, to try and bring the parents' position close and the, and the children's position not to be in conflict, but to, to help be on the side of the parents. And what so about for adults? adults? And for adults, uh, we already talk you know, more about the family finances and uh, to encourage people to, uh, like we said before, to have their finances contribute to their well-being, their peace of mind, to allow them to, to focus on what's really important to them in life rather than being busy how to cover this check or that check and how to pay their bills. And then we also, we all know that main source of marital strife is, is financial stress. Uh, Hazal talk about it. Every, everybody knows that. And uh, so again, if you'll be on top of your finances, you'll manage them the way that, that they should be managed. Your, your home will be, a, be more harmony able to focus on your children and, and other things that are more important to you. And that's just the motivation to actually uh, give it your attention. But most of us, when there's things that cause us stress, we tend to ignore it, push it away, roll the can down the hill or whatever it is, just to uh, not focus on it. And, and we come in and we say, we'll help you. And we've seen people in worse situations you'll, uh, that's actually more in the coaching itself. But in, in education, we, we teach people, first of all, the motivation and the reasons why we think you should focus and give it time and attention. And you'll see that it is manageable. And, uh, you know, we teach them how to relate to the children. What do you answer when your child comes and says, everyone has it and I need it and, and this and that. There's a, there are smart ways of dealing with, with requests from children like that. And then, you know, we teach people the plain and simple, building a budget, how to do it, how to do it in a, that, that it shouldn't be too stressful and to plan for the future, to short-term savings, long-term savings. Again, more, more of the, the reasons to do it and how to do things like that, rather than giving them a whole, in America or everywhere, financial literacy, normal people refer to as what does insurance mean and what the, what the taxes mean. All those technical things we don't address. What we do address is understanding uh, what the temptations are and why it's worth focusing on it and how do, you, how do you do it? How do you go about building a budget, living by a budget together with your wife, Periodically, meetings, we discuss, and you know, we, one of the examples are that 
rather than I decide or you decide, none of us decide, it's the budget that decides. And we meet at the beginning of the year, we decide what's in the budget, take everything into account, my needs, your needs, and then the budget decides. Uh, so it's healthier for everybody, it's better for everybody. And you know, we teach people what, a little bit about what the dangers of debt are and how destructive they can be and how you can fall into it without being fully aware some mistakes that people make, many different examples of, uh, doesn't have to be your dumb or, or doing anything wrong. Uh, a lot of smart, clever, professional people also need help with this because this is something that's not taught almost anywhere. So now you do get into the nitty gritty with people, right, on more of a personal coaching basis? Right, so I, I said that, we spoke about education and now we speak about coaching um, where we give people one-on-one -on -one with a couple, with a trained coach, go through their finances. We have a very clear process. It's been proven many, many times over. Pretty remarkable. And, uh, you know, everybody says if you know, they're simply not covering, they're not earning enough, what, what are you going to do for them? But uh, that's a great question. And it's not just a great question, but every couple that comes asks the same question, not just the same question, they're convinced that they can't earn any more, they can't spend any less. Why are they convinced? Because if they could, they would have done it themselves. So what else can you do for us? <laughs> and we say, with all due respect, you've done your best and you couldn't do any more, but the truth is that yes, you can earn more, and yes, you can spend less. And with, without it being stressful. And here they look at us and they say, okay, prove it. And they say, no, you're going to prove it. And we go through a very process, a few months, and there is work. We're not saying that it's not work, but we are saying that we have to make sure it shouldn't be stressful or, or at least not more than a, a little bit of stress. Because every, every change has an inherent some pain and some stress. But if you know and you appreciate what the goal is and what you're coming to and the peace of mind and the control that you will be and how much it will contribute to your quality of life, it makes it easier to go through and to make it all, all very much worthwhile. And we have it happening all the time. The, the changes that people have brought about are simply phenomenal. How did you develop this whole process? And are these all materials that you've developed? Have you worked with professional money managers? Like, how do you get all these, both the educational materials and the coaching process? We always, you know, what I think are now guiding principles we talk about uh, that we live by King Solomon's advice of Chua Barov how worthwhile it is to consult. And we always, over the years, consulted with professionals. I, I wouldn't use the word money managers because that's a, I think that's a different profession. We, we more consulted with psychologists and with educators rather than money managers. But um, over the years, all very well developed and always consulted and we continue to consult all the time with, with professionals, yes. So where are these educational and coaching services located? Because my understanding is they're kind of deployed worldwide. And how does that, how is that network sort of mushroomed? It's a very good question. And not just as a good question, but from when you first contacted me until now, it's taken on a very serious change. And I'll email you something which talks about it. But basically, we, we were always hesitant to train coaches outside of where we have the sealer branches because we believe that from the true impact from the sealer services to take place in the community you need people on the ground who are there who understand the local community who can go in and deliver lectures and schools wherever it is to actually uh, have the greatest impact so we never wanted to train coaches outside of those uh, jurisdictions recently 
we started a course which we advertised uh, and we called it a dramatic change in our policy where due to technology and other things we feel like we can now from the distance manage supervise and deliver services uh, anywhere basically and we have a course that started last week between 30 and 40 people from around the world that signed on and many or numerous new communities and new locations where we had no presence before and they've begun training so that's a really a, a tremendous development not just that but i myself I'm a, I'm a good friend of rabbi avi kassel sure and i'm not sure actually the truth is i'm not i got confused i i thought i got confused with maor and olami so i a lot of people get confused. Don't worry. <laughs> it's all connected. We're all very cl- close and connected. I also know, I thought maybe I told you, I know Rabbi Gershenfeld very well. Oh, okay. Just spe- I just spent uh, Shabbat with him last week. Really? Ah, most special people. So I, I am a good friend of Avi Kassel and I contacted him. I told him that I believe for Makarvim to understand and to be able to help people manage their finances and not just preach to them religion would be, would be able to enhance their work greatly. I believe in that very strongly. And I contacted him. I told him to tell the people there in Olami. Yes, he just forwarded us something, uh, an email about it. Right. So that's, that was a result of my call to him. So, I, again, we're planning to have this course. And then as soon as it finishes, to have another course. There will be ongoing courses where we'll start training people, uh, both who will act within Mesila and even without Mesila, to help people manage their finances. So I think we substantially broadened our reach in the, in the last few days. So these are places where you won't have necessarily educational centers, but you'll have Correct. coaches. Right, but in the, in the email, we also talk about how we were hoping that when people get the taste of what Mesila has to offer, People will see that it's making an impact and they'll contact us to see how they can broaden that impact and hopefully over time it'll mushroom in the community rather than for us waiting to be a branch. We're jumping in and, be, and planting seeds that hopefully that will grow. What does Masila actually mean and why, why did you choose that as the name? Masila means a path. But if you look at the Mephorshim, the, Commentary. the different commentaries, different Rashi and the Malbim, I don't remember exactly who, but if you look at the difference between uh, Mesila and Derech or Shvil and other words in Hebrew, is that uh, Mesila is a, a well-trodden path, uh. not, not just a path. And the reason why, why, why we think is that although Mesila is a relatively new organization, we're actually promoting concepts that our parents and grandparents knew and lived by and didn't need teaching. And these are challenges of contemporary situations and different forces of the modern world, which require it being promoted. I always say that my age, I'm 51. And I feel like my parents' age, people thought, teaching people to manage their finances. You need to tell people that you can't spend more than you have. Or you need to tell people that it's worth saving. These are things that they, they knew and they understood as obvious and they, they wouldn't understand why you need an organization or a movement for this. Whereas my children also, you know, they can't understand, well, what, what do you mean? You should think before and it's too foreign to them, all, all these things. Whereas I'm like in between where I saw the way my parents and grandparents uh, were careful and how they, uh, you know, how they manage their finance. And I see how you know, the generations have changed and how the savings rate has dived. You know, these are, these are things that are well documented. And suddenly, you know, the, the need for Masita couldn't be, couldn't be greater. Tell me just one or two maybe horror stories that you've encountered people that you know in really really dire straits and then maybe one or two success stories where you've really seen a, a, a tremendous turnaround for a family or group of people 
um, hard for me. The horror stories include people losing their lives. I'm, I'm not talking Aye. about absolutely. It's a, it's a killer. It's not a, not an exaggeration at all. For sure, the marriage and uh, other things and sickness, but even losing their lives. I mean, that, that's the that's the extent of of financial stress where where it gets people to. Um, and success stories, we have so many. Uh, it's hard for me now to to think of a specific one that would be the most useful. You do uh, encounter uh, people where they're in like traumatic debt and you know really tremendous levels of difficulty and they're able to climb out of it and, and move on. Yeah, and, and, and in a remarkable way where, where you wouldn't have believed. I actually heard a few minutes of the, the training course that started last week and somebody asked the situations where you feel that are beyond uh, being able to help. You know, it's the obvious question where people see, you know, what are you going to do for this family? And the person who's training said, are there people that we can't help? Yes, there are people that we can't help. But when a coach meets somebody and he's not sure how to help, he has to speak to his supervisor and supervisor to his supervisor. And if all of us decide that there's really nothing else to be done, then only then do we allow to express that maybe this is that family. But otherwise, every family who comes to us, and he said, you wouldn't believe the extent of what changes people have done uh, to their lives as a result of the Nasila process. And therefore, whoever comes to us, however dire the straits are, we believe, we assume that they have the ability to change their situations, to climb out of it, not uh, as quickly as they hope was as they expect. It took years to, to dig the hole that they've got themselves into. So it's going to be a process and it is going to take time, but uh, we give everybody the, the benefit of the doubt. And it's not just wishful thinking, it's because we've seen tremendous changes that people have made. Um, and, and that's why we, we believe that everybody uh, can improve their situation, and not just improve, but significantly improve their situation. What are some of your future goals? You said that you've recently expanded your reach to allow for coaching all over the world and, you know, really trying to magnify the impact and, and broaden where you're connecting. Are there other programs you'd like to develop, other aspects of this whole process that you believe are still missing? First thing is that uh, we, we didn't speak much about the business division. Oh, um, please. That's those are activities that are only taking place in Israel as of now. And we have demand from our branches around the world, and that's something that needs to be developed. I think it's urgent, very, very needed. People have great concepts and great ideas, uh, but are unaware of how to implement them and how to successfully uh, run those businesses. That's one thing. And the other thing is, you know, we, we, we are in many schools, but uh, there's still many more schools that don't teach the Nasila uh, curriculum. And uh, we need to have the resources to be able to advertise properly and to, and to develop uh, more modern tools which are used in today's classrooms, all, all things that need to be developed. I think there's still many, many, many more things as an example, we think that uh, games or children's uh, are powerful uh, educational tools that could and should be done, uh, different books. And uh, there are many, many things that we should and could do. And we're hoping to get there. Incredible. What, what exactly, when you mentioned the business division, what exactly are you doing for businesses? Yes. That's much more complex. True. Um, but again, it's focused on, on basic principles, uh, not a device. In other words, uh, you've got specific challenges that are something to do with your industry or your specific circumstances, and you may need a, a business consultant. But we're here to teach people the basic principles uh, that you think, you know, he's running a business, he must know, 
and, and it's absolutely not the case. Uh, so we teach people uh, basic principles of business and we also coach businesses. We do both of those things very successfully in, in Israel. And soon we hope to be doing it in senior branches abroad as well. Incredible. Well, it sounds like this is, as you mentioned, really potentially life-saving work in, in a sense and certainly marriage-saving and peace of mind saving and people perhaps don't appreciate the degree to which financial challenges, insecurities, and concerns can destabilize a person or a family or a community. It sounds like the work that you're doing is, is allowing people to find that firm footing and to really live lives in peace and where, where money is not the dominant theme of their lives, but is just sort of a, an, an underlying reality, but that they're able to actually live life. We also talk about the impact of the community. If you could take 10% of people who need support from the community and make them into contributors to, to the community, it tips the scale in such a dramatic way that uh, it can a huge impact. Any parting words, uh, Shmuley, and, and where can people learn about Masila online if they want to avail themselves of the service, if they want to participate as service providers? Where could people learn more about this phenomenal organization and movement? www.mesila.org. And there's whatever we're doing, we're doing a lot of great work. I still feel like we're already doing a drop in the ocean. And absolutely, everybody's welcome. We need a lot of help. You're welcome to come and help, to join. We look forward to the opportunity to be able to help more and more people. Um, but that's where, that's where you can find more, that's where you can get help or be of help. Both are things that we are very much welcome. And we hope to see the grow and to impact more and more people, to have more and more people enjoy the life of Masila. Shmuley Margolis, founder of Masila. Thank you so, so much for joining us. Be well. This has been Ari Koretsky on Jews You Should Know. Please visit us at JewsYouShouldKnow.com and subscribe at iTunes, Stitcher, or wherever you consume podcasts. Find us on social media at Jews You Should Know. If you'd like to become a supporter of this podcast, we would greatly appreciate that. And you can do so by visiting Patreon.com. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N.com slash Jews You Should Know. Finally, if you have enjoyed this podcast, please leave us a review so that we can continue to grow and introduce many more people to Jews You Should Know.